You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring you interviews from experts around the world on the latest and most interesting issues regarding human rights international humanitarian law. My name is Russell Garner, and we are broadcasting from the Raoul Balabai Institute in Lund, Sweden. Today, we are speaking to Marissa Jackson Sau, an incoming research fellow at the Open Societies Foundation and former Deputy Commissioner for Community Relations at the New York City Commission of Human Rights. In focus this episode is Marissa's current research agenda, what she is calling the Personhood Project. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy this podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, specifically where you're coming from as a researcher and uh, what baggage you're carrying with you? Yes. um, Well, first, I love that question. I could say where I'm coming from geographically is New York City um, by way of Detroit, Jamaica and Bermuda. And so I guess that's a little bit of the baggage in itself. But beyond that, I operate um, as a critical race theorist, as a feminist, as a mom of three children, as someone who was married to a recent immigrant, and someone who lives in, has lived in big American cities for most of her life, and um, cares a great deal about uh, cosmopolitanism and um, urban life and gentrification, displacement. And I think the theme of my personal life is just an obsession with finding home for myself, but for like certainly for other people. That's very, very interesting and something worth delving a little bit farther into. Sure. Uh, disciplinarily, sort of what background do you come from as far as research itself is concerned? But, okay. But Dis- yes, disciplinarily, I come from the social sciences okay. and the humanities. And in, 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 the univer- in university, I studied African-American studies and psychology. And I do see strands of that, um, the psychology in my work all the time, and certainly the African-American studies. Um, within the African-American studies, I also got into Black Atlantic transnationalism, African studies, and certainly um, Latin American and Caribbean studies as well. And that has informed all of my work. I have carried that with and through my legal studies and certainly into my practice and now my scholarship. And you're a lawyer, correct? I am a lawyer. Ah, okay. Very interesting. So you're a um, incoming fellow with the Open Societies Foundation. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what um, you'll be researching as a fellow? Yes. So. As a fellow, specifically for the purposes of the fellowship project, I will be studying Black American women's human rights advocacy in the post-Obama era. But this is part of a larger scholarly agenda that I like to call the Personhood Project, which is, you know, a legal, sociological, anthropological, historical study of mostly Black people's assertions of personhood in societies that consistently deny or marginalize or sub, like subordinate them. And I try to take an intersectional approach. So looking at sexuality, religion, gender, nationality, immigration status, all, all in that together, R- like rural versus urban, etc. Definitely. There are lots of different things that can affect outcomes yes. and, and whether or not someone's considered a person. So when we had spoken previously, you had mentioned um, that you were focusing specifically on contract law. Mm-hmm. How does contract law interact with personhood? 
So contract law for me is very important because it is an expression and a reflection of agency. And I guess I should say a little bit more about that. So it's not just contract law, it's contract and property law. And so I think those two areas of law have really sort of um, shown the ways in America, like within American law, how we think about what it means to be human in terms of expressing authority, power, liberty, um, freedom in the United States, property ownership was like a defining characteristic as to like whether you were a citizen, whether you um, had certain rights, um, and certain people owned property and certain people were owned as property. Certain people have the power to contract, contracting property, and some people were the property that was being contracted. And we see that still today. Um, there are a lot of reverberations of that um, today. Um, I'll th I could make a one example, criminal justice system, you know, where you have the privatization of jails and prisons. And so folks are contracting and there are a lot of bodies that are being contracted. Um, and this is obviously, you know, 150 some odd years after the end of chattel slavery in the United States. However, you see sort of the same dynamics taking place where you have a certain class of people that is doing the contracting business-wise, and then you have the bodies that are acting as consideration for that contract, that are being conveyed as property, as part of that contract. And so you do definitely see the differences in agency, liberty, power, and therefore personhood. When we, when we talk about bodies here, or rather when you uh, speak on bodies, what exactly do you mean? Like, how are these bodies contracted for, uh, you know what purpose are they contracted and how how is that seen like how is that expressed with respect to race in the united states it's always been labor right it's always been um whether we're talking about folks of african descent um folks of south american descent immigrants um the idea has always been that folks are their presence is required to perform labor, ideally as cheaply, or if you can really get a good bargain as part of your contract, for free. And then you start to have problems when the people who have been provide the bodies that are providing the labor and the economic benefit begin to assert agency of their own and begin to require payment right? So consideration, begin to try to enter into contracts for their labor, and then also want to do things like own property themselves, or lease property, you start to see frustrations and tensions around, you know, you being willing to share space, land property with people of certain classes, um, folks who had previously been the property, you don't want to live with them, um, you don't want to live on equal terms with them. Um, and so I think, I hope, I, I don't know if that answers the questions very squarely, but basically when folks are cooperating as the property, I mean, as the property pr producing the labor, providing the labor, it's okay that they're present. But then once they start to express a certain personhood and demand a right to also have property, have contracting agency, we have seen uh, resistance to that throughout time. And whether that be women, whether that be um, trans folks, LGBTQ folks, 
black and brown people, native people, uh, Asian Americans, and on and on and on. So this is definitely interesting. And while some of our uh, listeners might be familiar with the sort of intersection of the criminal justice system and the um, exploitation of labor uh, Mm -hmm. in the United States, I'm not sure that all of them are. So could you make that a little bit more explicit? Absolutely. So, of course, we had a massive slave trade um, wherein folks were brought over from the African continent and um, sold to sites and people throughout North America, the Caribbean, um, uh, certainly the present-day United States. And after slavery was abolished in the 1860s in the United States, 1865 to be specific, the need for the labor (laughs) did not expire with it. And so what we've seen is um, ways in which society has replicated forms of slavery. Um, So we saw sharecropping immediately thereafter and also just refusals to allow people to like formerly enslaved persons and their descendants to integrate into society as full and free citizens. And as that sort of phased out, although, you know, there's still some remnants of that system, you start to see more and more policing of black and brown bodies and spaces because of course they were no longer confined to plantations. So you start saying, you know, well, you shouldn't be over here or you shouldn't be living here. And um, you start policing presence um, and certainly start criminalizing activity and creating a system by which it um, is more likely that you, if you are alive, (laughs) and really that is really the only threshold, if you are alive as a black or brown person, you will likely end up in prison where the same constitutional provision um, that had like sort of uh, previously allowed people to be enslaved now still allows you to, allows the government to force you to provide labor in prison. So for example, when I was working in the federal court system, uh, my desk was made by imprisoned people. They were not paid and they don't have to be under the constitution. The constitution still provides for involuntary servitude of those who are incarcerated. Beyond that, um, because prisons have been privatized over the years, they are good business. And we've even had um, cases where judges have been found guilty of you know, purposely sentencing people or finding people guilty of crimes for the purposes of having them sent to jails with the expectation that they would receive money like as a form of a kickback for that. And which is obviously not legal, but it just shows sort of the relationship between um, black and brown bodies, labor and capital to this day. That's very interesting. So would you say that prisoners aren't full people in modern America? It accorded the rights of full people is what I would say. Legally, I would say they're certainly not. When you, assuming that you are released from prison, you um, in many cases are not allowed to vote, which is an expression of your legal personhood. You will find many challenges in most jurisdictions finding good work that will allow you to stay on, like stay in, in free society and not end up back in prison. Um, And so many people who are released from incarceration find themselves in vicious cycles that will lead them to being incarcerated in the future. And um, because what happens is you, you, you are required to make money one way or the other. And either you're going to make money within the system, the legal 
framework or outside of it and you know you will end up um, back in the system making desks for free do you have any european examples i know that might be outside of of uh, your yeah i can think of some um one that comes to mind immediately would be sort of this Windrush scandal that's been happening in the UK, where you have folks who were not, their ancestors were not only brought over as enslaved people, not only kidnapped and brought to the Caribbean, but then those societies were then continuously looted by the colonial power, in this case the United Kingdom, resources extracted, obviously the bodies exploited, and um, because of the way cosmopolitanism works, right? When, you know, uh, folks needed to seek work and opportunity, they would go to the United Kingdom itself, the sites, you know, to London, Birmingham, etc., places in England, and um, are now having their presence questioned and having f- folks being sent back summarily, even though they are British and were, you know, ha- their ancestors were subject to the British crown against their will, and now they're being told, well, actually, you're not British and you can't stay here, you know very elderly people or you know folks who were not given like papers or um, to prove their presence or the, the legitimacy thereof um, so that's one example and I think then there are more um, subtle more structural examples um, I've studied sort of France how you know France will um, you know legally everybody you know there's no disaggregation of where someone is from and you it's all about you know sort of oh, everybody is French except that under the surface, not everyone is treated as French. Um, folks are tracked into certain categories in schools and therefore weeded out of certain opportunities and certainly just targeted, you know, throughout their lives. Folks are living in certain places, you know, not not all arrondissement in Paris are equal. And so um, there are just ways um, that folks are sort of segregated and marginalized and not accorded full status as French citizens, even though on paper, they can't actually assert a claim that they're being treated differently because the government doesn't recognize. That's an interesting point. I think we can see a lot of that mirrored in different European countries. Even here in Sweden, there is a problem where there are many folks who are of non-European background Mm -hmm. who are disproportionately represented in spaces of what they call specially economically depressed areas. Okay, right. Um, You know, sort of understood in this is that there are certain people who occupy these spaces and they tend not to be European, uh, of European descent. Right, right. Um, um, Going back to the U.S. for a moment. Sure. uh, Do you think the current political climate in the U.S. has affected the struggle for personhood? Absolutely. And in very blatant ways. And in this case, I would say um, certainly almost everyone's personhood has been um, threatened under the current regime. (laughs) I would say, you know, obviously the whole world is um, aware of like things like the Muslim ban, no longer being willing to accept any refugees. um, And certainly just by banning folks from entering, similarly situated people within the borders already are therefore is therefore sort of obviously signal to them that you are not welcome even though you're already present the just to talk about immigration for a moment the fallout 
what what is really particularly troubling about for many like American citizens within the United States is that within sort of the goal of persecuting people who are not citizens, many citizens are also being caught up in raids and things like that because they are perceived as possibly not being citizens. And that is based on physical appearance, skin color, and physical characteristics. So that is not to say that those who are American citizens who are being caught up and being mistreated because they're being perceived as citizens should um, receive more sympathy than folks who are actually immigrants who are caught up in that. But it's just to show how many people are being impacted. Um, it's, you know, if you if you are outside of the United States and you think, well, no, it's just folks who are in the United States without proper documentation. The listeners can't see my air quotes. Um, no, it's, it's much more, like much more draconian than that. We're talking about people who have followed every single law to the T and who are seeing the processing of their applications be delayed unduly. The prices of application uh, applications and petitions have skyrocketed. Um, the price of citizenship applications has skyrocketed. The prices of passports, if you are a citizen or not, has skyrocketed, or you're becoming naturalized, has skyrocketed. And, you know, there is a pressure now to always have papers on you because if you are a person of color and you're riding a train um, or a plane, you know, depending on what's happening in the municipality or the rural or suburban region you are located in, you can be picked up and you can be asked for proof of citizenship. And if you don't have that, you can be detained for years waiting for an opportunity to prove that you are a citizen. We've even seen cases of people's citizenship being revoked, which we never thought as Americans was even possible. Um, so that's just one example of the threats to your actual presence and rights. Um, and what that's what I would call your legal personhood, really being threatened in a very egregious, um, explicit manner. To circle back to something you had said previously, during your incarceration while waiting for your hearing, are you also being subjected to the labor conditions that we had previously spoken on? I do not know what it's like in terms, I have to say, I don't have a particular mastery of, you know, what is happening in immigration detention in terms of labor. But I do know, and we've all seen this sort of around the southern border, what the conditions, the living conditions are like. So seeing government attorneys argue that if you are in detention, you are not entitled to soap, you are not, enti- you are not entitled to um, a mattress, so you are not entitled to the basic, I wouldn't even call it comforts, but things that are meant to just simply sustain your life or basic human dignity. And we're seeing folks argue that human beings are not entitled to those things in the year 2019. It shocks the system. Again, these are not conditions or things that we thought we would see. I mean, basically, you know, there was a a scene um, in a California federal court where the judge literally could not believe that the argument that the government lawyer was making was that these people are not entitled to soap or baths or toothbrushes or, you know, food or whatever, and kept asking, like, just to be clear, you're arguing this. And the lawyer is saying, yes, we would say that no, soap is not necessary. It's 
you know, there are many, many examples of, of threats to personhood right now in the United States. And I, I just picked that out because it is so beyond the pale. And yet that is a actual reality. And what is horrifying is that there are people who support it. I, I, I definitely want to go um, a little bit deeper into human rights discourse in the United mm -hmm. States. But before I do that, I'd, I'd like to point out um, that uh, the, the terminology you're using and, and how you're expressing uh, these conditions has also been echoed by domestic politicians, even in the United States, as high up as our House of Representatives. And I believe there have even been uh, senators who have characterized the treatment of, of these, the treatment of people in migrant detention centers as you have also characterized mm -hmm. it. So I just, I think it's a very important point to underline yes. that this is quite a broad consensus among those who have been made aware of the conditions, who've yes. actually visited the, the detention centers. So, so sort of as a part of that, where is the human rights discourse in the US right now? Is human rights sort of even, I mean, this, it's a fairly flagrant um, abuse of human rights. Is is there any sort of pushback using the discourse of human rights at the moment? And, and if so, do you think it's the right tool? I think, um, so what I have witnessed is um, a use of human rights language where such language did not ex was not widely used before, precisely because some of this phenomena is so shocking. And... Um, there is a certain sense in which, you know, sort of the discourse of civil rights, you know, voting and um, freedom of assembly, things feels erudite when you're talking about soap and toothpaste. And so that has forced people to look for new discursive tools and they have um, turned to the uh, discussion of of human basic human dignity, which is much more closely related to what um, I, as a human rights scholar, know as human rights discourse. So you see more of that. I think, as as a as a parallel to that, you've also seen a, I, I would say, a return to human rights discourse around economic justice. Certainly, probably primarily economic justice. Um, and social issues such as health care, such as water rights. And I think it's because, again, civil rights language, and I'm saying civil rights in the traditional sort of American sense, does not account for those things. The uh, United States has intentionally failed to account for things like a right to food, a right to water. And so when you start having to defend the right to water, you have to rely on human rights language. So we've seen a real return to that. Is it the right tool? I would say yes. I think it is very helpful. It is not the end all be all, however, um, because, you know, human rights frameworks themselves are not perfect and have not proven to be wholly, wholly effective. And so what I advocate for is a holistic approach between human rights language and giving empowering folks with vocabulary to name violations and to proffer solutions. And I think that has to be combined with political will to get to the solutions and that 
that political will should translate into legislation, policy, and hopefully jurisprudence. But I have to be honest, in the United States, you know, the federal courts seem to be stacked and are increasingly stacked with jurists who do not believe in human rights. And so because um, in that sense, uh, and also not it's not only just who is making up the federal bench more and more because of, you know, the president's appointees, but the president himself is not necessarily always listening to the edicts of the court anymore. So there is a question as to whether we have rule of law anymore. And so I think there is more priority that we have to put on the political process. And by politics, I don't just mean electoral politics. I mean, grassroots, you know, protests and boycotting and, you know, things that um, we see folks engaging in around the world today and, um, and, and, and things that have also been parts of the American civil rights movement tradition as well. Um, I think those uh, tools in concert with human rights lexicon are probably our best bet. And I also don't want to um, ignore the role that social media plays. And so you see a lot of this human rights language being used in social media and it's the, the trans, like being able to transmit that information um, domestically and having eyes globally on it and being able to receive supports and endorsements globally has been very, very powerful for advocates and activists. It sounds very much like your personhood project is extraordinarily timely. Um, (laughs) As, uh, right, the arguing for basic human rights, you also need to agree on what is a person, who constitutes a person, a legal person in a system. That's right. Uh, Could you go a little bit deeper into um, where you see your project fitting in uh, to a um, sort of tapestry of change, if you will? I think what I hope to accomplish through this project is certainly empowering people with vocabulary and an understanding of what it is that they're seeing and experiencing. Because um, I think the way that the project sort of came to me is that I was working on a bunch of different research projects because I study social and political movements and just sort of figuring out like, what is the thread here? Like, what is it that I'm actually getting at? Because for, for, a while, for a couple of years, I've been saying, no, this is, a lot of it is about trying to find home, trying to find, you know, because I was doing a lot of work on like refugee law or um, the role of women within certain societies and like a lot of women are being confined to homes and things like that. But what I realized I was actually <laughs> trying to locate was a person's right to be and thrive right and 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 for me as a as a human who likes you know i'm into like interior design and real estate and stuff like that it's just because i for me my comfort as a human is in the home but it but but for many people it's the right to be outside without being policed right it's the right to to move um the right to um to be paid fairly so that's where the, the the personhood that's the thread that I was able to identify and basically I am trying to provide discursive tools for people to be able to say okay no so that this is what bothers me about this phenomenon or this is what bothers me about the subtext of what this politician is saying because I hear the words they're saying 
but I think I hear a dog whistle and like what is under that dog whistle what is bothering me about um, this discourse here and then on the flip side how can we properly react you know and resist some of these oppressive forces I also want to provide people tools so that they can be proactive in creating the societies creating just and equitable societies um, and I think what a just and equitable society means is that it's one where everyone has an opportunity to contract and make deals about what they would like their lives and their families um, to look like and and the standards of healthcare they'd like to receive and the kind of food they'd like to eat and you can only have um, you can only really make good choices about the food you'd like to eat if there is access to that food in your neighborhood and and you should have a say and power over that um, it doesn't mean that you're going to get your way all the time it does mean that you have an equal shot when you are negotiating with your fellow community members about um, what is present in, uh, in your neighborhood and and so on and so forth so that is what I am trying to accomplish. I think there's a, an aspect of my project that deals a lot with media representations. And um, I have found that iconography and visual representations of the societies that we wish to have are very powerful. And also visual, visual representations of some uncomfortable social phenomenon have also proven powerful. Part of my project is uh, a capturing of, uh, as we were, I was mentioning to you before, uh, Senegalese women on screen, on the little screen in Senegal. There are some very popular television dramas that have opened up a sphere of a really interesting sphere of debate within Senegalese society about the role of women um, and their abilities to contract or their abilities to sort of negotiate um, their terms of existences within their families, at work, within marriages. Because Senegal is such a religious society, a lot of things are not talked about because they're, they're considered taboo or phenomenon that you would not want to question. Because if you question them, that means you're not being like a good member of Senegalese society, you're not fitting into your role. But because these are dramas, because they're fictional t television series, you can talk about them because you're talking about something that's not real while actually debating social norms. And so what has been very interesting within those television series is that you are seeing fictional female characters doing things that are not permitted in society now they may happen but they're not you know officially permitted in society but because you're seeing the depiction you can talk about it and um, that has contributed to a sea change in conversation um, in Senegal um, and so I'm hoping that in a few months I'll be able to write a little piece about what that might look like if we did some of that in the United States. I mean, I think we have, you know, you know, within sort of uh, African American communities, there's shows called like like Blackish and Mixedish, you know. But because the TV, those TV shows are sort of selected by major like production houses, they are filtered, and you know, they're, you're really getting something that has been deemed acceptable by the white gaze. 
but in a place like Senegal you haven't seen that and and there's actually a lot of cross-atlantic conversation by folks who you know in the Caribbean who also speak French who are really enjoying and saying you know this is fantastic because you know this is actually a closer representation to my life than what I would get on you know a major American network and so I think uh, it's interesting to consider the role that media and art and culture can play in pushing a human rights conversation forward or pushing it backwards it really depends yeah well thank you so much marissa it's been really wonderful talking with you likewise and um we hope to hear more from you soon that was marissa jackson sal an incoming research fellow at the open societies foundation and former deputy commissioner for community relations at the new york city commission of human rights we just discussed her blossoming research agenda the personhood project this has been on human rights For more information and the latest updates on Raoul Valambay Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Or for more information on our work, you can go to our website at www.rwi.lu.se. Thank you so much for listening.